Hey folks, I missed last Thursday. You probably noticed that we didn't have an episode. Friday came around and I'm like, I got to get something up. Um, but I was not able to get to the podcast last Thursday. And here's why. I uh, was traveling for work. Oftentimes I do the podcast, you know, a day or two before a publishing date. I, I should plan ahead, but a uh, story of my life, not planning ahead far enough in advance. And uh, yeah, it caught me. I uh, was so busy with my day job. And then right after that, I had a conference to go speak at in Florida, where I live. It was a, a, a conservation conference all about the progress of this idea called the Florida Wildlife Corridor, something I'm, I'm hugely passionate about protecting the wild lands uh, of Florida, my home state. And between getting ready for that talk, doing my actual job, and then also, three, launching a new podcast, I was not able to upload a show on Thursday. And let me tell you about my new show real quick. It's called Florida Uncut, and it's all about talking to the people uh, who are dedicating their lives to making sure Florida stays connected and protected. There's this really cool and innovative idea in Florida, like I just mentioned, called the Florida Wildlife Corridor. And what's so neat about it, it's not just protect land and keep it from, you know, turning into houses or parking lots or more roads, you know, keeping it an intact ecosystem, but it's also making sure it can connect to other green spaces. So like, for instance, you know, Yosemite, which is what we're going to talk about in today's episode. You know, what what good is it if it's just surrounded by development all the way around? It's basically a zoo without fences. Um, it's, it's better if land can connect to other pieces of land so that those animals, um, those birds and, and plants even, those ecosystems can be connected for transportation and migration and allows more fluidity in nature. So there's a lot of really big ideas for corridors out there like the Yukon to Yellowstone or Yellowstone to Yukon corridor. Uh, there's others that are basically saying, hey, let's not just protect land, but let's make sure all these protected lands have essentially pathways between them, green spaces that connect them so that those animals can migrate and uh, you know create more genetic diversity within them. That, that's one thing that leads to the downfall of a species an endangered species especially, is when they're confined to a really small area. There's just a lot of genetic uh, inbreeding that goes on until eventually the entire population collapses. That's what happened to uh, the mammoth, woolly mammoth on, I think, Wrangell Island. That's what they think happened is just, you know, they're stuck on an island. Anyway, I'm getting way in the weeds here. That was what uh, my podcast is about interviewing the people behind the idea to to protect wild Florida and uh, just hearing their stories. There's not a podcast dedicated to it. I wanted to start one. This is what I spend a lot of my free time doing. Like I've told y'all, my love for adventure has evolved over the years to wanting to understand how the land and how the places that we have adventures come to be. I've had life-changing experiences in places like Yosemite, which we're going to talk about today. But how did Yosemite National Park come to be? Who are the people that make these places uh, protected and the places they become for all of us to enjoy? How does it happen? And what I've learned is it doesn't just happen. There's a lot of dedicated people spending a lot of time, money, and energy to make sure these gems of nature, these uh, crown jewels stay intact and stay open for recreation and stay 
places that we can uh, go and be inspired. And so I have been deeply, deeply inspired by the place Yosemite National Park, probably more than any place else in the world. And today we're talking to David Smart, who recently authored a book on one of the people that helped to push that idea through adventure sports, uh, through the sport specifically of climbing and, and also whitewater kayaking, uh, Royal Robbins. You may have heard that name before, not really known what that means. It's kind of a unique name, uh, but it's definitely uh, sticks out a little bit. Well, Royal is a climber from the same era that Yvonne Chouinard and Doug Tompkins, the founders of both Patagonia and the North Face, around the time they were in Yosemite Valley climbing, the birth of the sport of big wall climbing uh, and sport climbing. Well, Royal's right up there with them, and he's doing it in a unique way, and he's kind of on the forefront of that mindset of low impact climbing, like climbing without using tons of tools, tons of gear that you have to basically uh, anchor into the rock, drill into the rock to put anchors up. Um, Royal's like, no, do it in a way that there's no, basically leave no trace climbing. Uh, he was forward thinker in that sense. So we're going to talk to David about this person uh, that he never met, but he was in the same circles as them. I thought this was a really interesting story. And you can find the book, Royal Robbins, the American Climber at Mountaineers.org. Uh, so sorry for the super long intro, but I wanted to explain what was going on last week. Um, I'm going to, this Thursday, I'm going to tease my new uh, podcast. I'm going to share a little bit of the first episode. And if you like it, go check it out. It is very different than this show, uh, but it's all connected. You know, at some point, if you love adventure, a lot of times you're having adventures on public places like a national park or a state park or uh, something that's not an urban setting. Find out how that place came to be, and if you want others to have the same opportunity you have to have adventures in these places, see how you can get involved. That's what I'm doing these days. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Uh, you heard a little about David and about Royal Robbins in the intro. Uh, but we're here with David Smart to to learn about the process of writing this book, the backstory, the the life, the legend. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for for joining us. H how you doing, David? Uh, very well. Thanks for inviting me, Mason. Yeah, it, as as is tradition, I always ask, where are you coming from? If that's home for you, great. If not, where's home for you? Uh, I'm in Toronto, in Canada, right now. Yeah. You know, you never know with this show. People are from people are on the other side of the world half the time. So yeah, yeah, having sure. someone in my own uh, time zone is kind of rare, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how did you, wh wh where's the interest in, because this isn't your first foray into kind of writing a biography for a famous climber. Is Toronto known for climbing? Is that where you grew up? Is that where you got interested in this? Tell us the backstory there. Of, yes, got absolutely. Uh, well, I've been a climber since uh, 1975, 76, and uh, I've seen a lot of the evolution of climbing, obviously. Um, and there is a, a substantial climbing community here in, uh, in Toronto, in Ontario. Uh, we climb on small cliffs, but we're uh, close to the Gunks as well, which is a major center of um, world rock climbing, American rock climbing in particular, and was a center of American rock climbing before Yosemite was. And, uh, and so I've always been rock, rock climber. I climbed a, 
not all over the world, but all over Europe and other places in the world and um, North America, absolutely. And so when I started climbing in the 70s, going to Yosemite and climbing El Capitan or Half Dome or these you know, enormous routes that had been put up in the 1950s by um, you know, Roy Robbins and his friends and uh, you know, Warren Harding and his friends uh, was a major objective. And the guys I started climbing with, uh, that was this sort of the center of their existence was getting through the work year to get enough money to go to Yosemite and climb these enormous routes. So they've always been part of my, you know, landscape of, uh, of dreams and aspirations, you know, spending days on end climbing up one of these rock walls. And uh, I did do that. I uh, have uh, climbed El Capitan and Half Dome and uh, quite a few other routes in Yosemite. And there was always this lore in the background of, you know, like what was presently cool in climbing was, uh, you know, having long hair and, you know, uh, wearing a, a wearing a, a headband and uh, you know athletic free climbing and all this stuff and you look at these pictures that seem just incredibly ancient of the guys like Royal Robbins in crew cuts and sunglasses with these gigantic uh, arrays of uh, heavy pitons hanging from their shoulders uh, pounding their way way up these walls and it, it seemed that like at the time both a little dated and sort of awe-inspiring that someone would walk up to a totally unclimbed cliff like El Capitan, which is some, I guess, 35, 3,600 feet high. And just with everyone else in the world saying it's impossible to climb it, spend days nailing their way up there. And over time, I became more and more interested in, uh, in story, the history of of climbing, how climbing developed. And there's quite a lot of literature about how mountaineering happened, uh, expedition stories, stories about Mount Everest and so on. But stories just about climbing um, and the great climbers of, of history were often quite murky. So I, I wrote in uh, 2018, and before that I'd written some novels, historical novels about climbing. And Fiction's really just, it's another way of, of looking at history, really. In any case, professional historians are always accusing each other of writing fiction. But then I, uh, I became interested in writing more uh, just the straight up stories, because some of the stories, like, you realize there's nothing you could add to this to make it more incredible, <laughs> stories in climbing. So I wrote a book about Paul Preuss, an Austrian free soloist, who was very much uh, in his own time seen in the same light as um, Alex Honnold is now, and you know, doing things that people were thought that th thought were impossible, but doing them, you know, on site, free solo, just walking up to it without a rope. Everyone thinks it's impossible, and then climbing it. And uh, I published that in 2018. And Preuss was also in that line in which you could put Royal Robbins, which is he was a, very much a believer in climbing as something where there should be rules or ethics or at least clarity about who's doing what, how. And that 
uh, there should be mi like minimum use of technology. You know, mostly it should just be your hands and feet and whatever fortitude you can muster to take on whatever uh, your objective is before you. And then I wrote a book that came out in uh, 2020 on uh, the Italian climber, Emilio Comici, who invented big wall climbing. And he was famous for saying his line would go where one drop of water fell from the top of the wall that he would not, he would just climb straight up and overcome any difficulties he found as he, as he climbed upwards. And he was a, he was a more complicated figure uh, than uh, Preuss because he embraced technology, although he also uh, very much uh, admired uh, Paul Preuss and he did a lot of free soloing, but he was known for inventing big wall climbing, like spending several days on a really hard route, um, using a lot of pitons if necessary. And then uh, that book did well. It won the uh, Boardman Tasker Award in Britain and uh, the attention it got um, probably contributed to my getting the H. Adams Carter Award for Mountain Literature from the American Alpine Club. And I, my connections personally in climbing were, although I climbed a fair amount in Europe, um, were to that North American scene. And so I started looking for a, a, a subject that would be like the next step from Komichi, like where the center of climbing somehow the, you know, the world center of climbing shifts from the Alps to America after the second world war in the 1950s and sort of who was most behind that change in how people saw climbing and, and where people who, who climbed wanted to, to go to learn to be climbers. And that, um, when you boiled it all down was, it was Royal for sure. He was behind that. He pushed it harder than anyone else. People contributed who did things with him. People contributed who did things to piss him off, but uh, he was the driver. Before this, did you feel kind of with climbing history, Royal was, despite being so influential and, and being known, did you feel he was even at that point underrated or correctly rated? What, how did you, from, from being a climber yourself growing up in that time, do you, do you feel like, I, I don't know. I don't know if he's the first names that comes off the tongue when you think of him, <laughs> but he's, he's up there, but like, as far as just in culture, how, what was your right. feeling about that? Well, I mean, he was not involved in, uh, Himalayan climbing during a great age of Himalayan uh, first ascents. You know, he was climbing during, you know, he, he was in a car driving to Yosemite for the weekend the night that they announced that Mount Everest had been climbed for the first time. And, you know, that was kind of really outside of their, their purview because as uh, Tom Hornbein and American who early American Himalayan climber told me Royal, like he had enough to climb in Yosemite and he wasn't ultimately necessarily really engaged with the idea of like 
going on a big expedition and uh, becoming famous because Yosemite was like, you know, even the American Alpine Journal didn't report on it in the 1950s. They gave like two paragraphs on the first ascent of the Salathe wall, like probably the most important climb ever done in America at that time. And maybe after that time too. Uh, so the Yosemite scene was kind of a little bit on the fringe. Did he feel pressure to be a mountaineer or, or, or was he totally content with where he was? <laughs> no, he tried to, he, he, it's a good question because he did go to the Alps and try to, uh, and succeed in doing like the hardest, uh, big wall rock routes that they had in Chamonix at the time, uh, adding two of his own. But he was never really comfortable climbing on snow and ice. He could on occasion just surprise everyone and like on-site pre-solo a big north wall in the Canadian Rockies. But uh, by and large, people said, you know, like he was very tentative on these kinds of uh, things that are relatively simple for uh, alpinists, like long, easy snow slopes or you know, moderate scrambling on, on loose rock. Uh, like if the rock was in any way solid, he was, you know, by far the, one of the best climbers of, of his era. But he, he would be very tentative on that kind of stuff. I think it just mainly kind of didn't interest him. He was mostly uh, interested in rock climbing or climbing on rock where or climbing on mountain routes, which were mainly rock. So... Uh, I think he really fought for the legitimacy of Yosemite in, in at a time when the kinds of you know super sustained long routes he was uh, he was interested in doing um, were not being done by a lot of people. A lot of people just didn't have the skills, partly because Royal and his friends were like an avant garde who were inventing and using them. That, yeah, such a wild time. It's just so many hugely influential people all in one place, influential to this day. And I felt like a lot of them felt the need to start like a clothing brand too, or just did. What yeah. was why was that such a common theme with so many of these the Mount Rushmore of climbing history? <laughs> why why did all of them start a brand around clothing? Uh, well, I think in the case of uh, Yvonne Schuenard, who was behind the Patagonia brand. And in the case of Royal, um, he was, uh, they started out with hardware brands, right? Like Royal had a, he was import, he started out importing hardware from Europe that you couldn't get in uh, North America and selling that uh, both, uh, you know, at first uh, just wholesale, but then retail as well. And then he started developing his own branded stuff particularly carabiners but there were um there were uh lawsuits and fear of you know being sued over climbing hardware you know failing or being misused or uh these things and uh the same thing happened with uh and art equipment shoe and art had started with the great pacific ironworks and uh then they they faced you know lawsuits about uh, people who really had, you know, misused uh, climbing equipment or weren't really experienced enough or their expectations were kind of not in uh, 
not in sync with uh, what you might reasonably expect from equipment. Uh, and then they, to protect themselves, they diversified. They went into clothing. Royal Robins, of course, the Royal Robins brand is still around. Patagonia brand is still very much around. And uh, in the case of Schoenard, he, uh, he's the Schoenard Climbing Equipment Company kind of morphed into the modern Black Diamond uh, Equipment Company. And uh, I think that that's really, really was it to protect themselves because they, you know, it wasn't a big market for hardware. It was hard to design, expensive to procure or to make. Just being in soft goods was a lot safer. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing that strikes me about Royal Robins is how, uh, and maybe this is just the pictures that exist or isn't tons and tons, but he's, he looks so modern. Uh, he's got a crew cut. He's wearing glasses. I mean, he looks like my dad, um, but like modern. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm like, whoa, this guy looks like he, he just he's walking down the street. It, it, I don't know. There's something about him doesn't look a, the same era as like Yvonne Chouinard or a Doug Tompkins or some of the the yeah. early early dirt bags. What 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 did was that indicative of anything? Well, I think he was uh, not had a natural sort of style in a way that he didn't really even realize like uh, that he, like he could choose, he could choose, you know, clothes that look good on him. He, uh, he was, he was tall. So, you know, clothes did look good on him. He was a very strong, thick guy. Um, he was a leader. And like, I think he was on, like, I, the thing was starting the clothes to sell some of his style was really Liz, his uh, wife, I think, to a great degree, saying, you know, we should sell the, st the style, the look that we've sort of accidentally put together here in our little community in Yosemite. And uh, yeah, he does. He does when you see it now. I mean, from the point of view of like some eras, like in the 1970s, when I was a teenager climbing, guys with crew cuts and the glasses he wore and so on, they look kind of in button-up shirts. They looked really uh, kind of old-fashioned and dated, but now everything's come around and they look, they look pretty cool, I agree. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. That's funny. Well, I just commented, I'm like, man, he looks like he could just yeah. walk right out of this book and, and be ready to go. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> What do you know about well, something else that's modern about him? I feel like is his commitment to conservation and commitment to clean climbing, or at least having as minimal impact on the land as possible. Where, where do you where did you learn that that came from? That kind of obsession with being was it just to do be you know do what the climbers are doing, but more difficult without all this you know added equipment, bolts and, and pitons, or was it more? from that conservation mindset of like, we, we've got to take care of this. I don't think you can really separate them. I think it was a, a matter, a matter of uh, respect for a lot of things. And one of the things that Royal really respected was British climbing. He went to Britain. He loved it in the UK and the people there loved him too. And he started a sort of British invasion of Yosemite <laughs> uh, by giving talks there. And in, in Great Britain, in, when he went there in uh, the early 60s, 
uh, clean climbing was really a thing. Like it had always been a thing. There were outcrops like gritstone outcrops where there were zero pitons and there still are zero pitons. And uh, he was attracted to the idea that with uh, work and, and commitment and a few of the right simple tools, you could just sort of eliminate all this impact that pitons were having on American cliffs. And, you know, you could see the scars uh, still in uh, lots of places in Yosemite and the gunks elsewhere from pitons being put in and out. And he was attracted to that idea of doing more with less and maybe, maybe not being able to go as many uh, places, but being able to, you know, use these new skills, even if they made the climbing a little bit more scary or a little bit more complicated. You know, he was responding to the fact that pitons were obviously having a, a great impact, but not everyone immediately, like he was really a visionary in this regard as well, because he showed the nuts and things that he was going to use for clean climbing to uh, people like Schoenart, who at first thought he was crazy. You know, they said it looked like, you know, old junk that uh, he found beside the railway tracks. <laughs> and some of it actually was. But uh, so I think it was that it was both because style was a thing. And I think this gets to all kinds of things about Royal's life, how he appeared, how he lived, how he uh, came across to other people, uh, how he climbed, uh, you know, really how he, how he dressed even like how that there was, um, he didn't really care if people disagreed with him, if people, uh, you know, thought he was wrong about things. Uh, he didn't mind that, but he always uh, was very conscious of trying to stick to the highest possible standard he knew of for what he was doing. And once he knew that clean climbing existed, there was sort of, no chance of Royal not saying this is the, this is the way forward. And I'm going to try to get people to do it. <laughs> Where do you think that commitment to high standards came from? Was he raised that way? Was it the military natural? You know, did he have a family like that? He said that it, it, that he was influenced that way in a couple of letters. He said that he was influenced that way by the military, but he already was very much in the way already before he was ever in the army. And uh, I think that, uh, yeah, I think he had a very hard youth and both of the father figures in his, his life, his, uh, his biological father and his stepfather were uh, uh, alcoholics. His uh, stepfather was uh, uh, violent towards him and he saw a lot of irresponsible adult behavior as a boy and he uh he craved sort of direction and then when he joined the, the boy scouts he sort of he got that the boy scouts were an enormous influence on his life he had uh had trouble he you know he he'd been arrested for burglary did a lot of pretty dangerous things as a as a, a boy and then when he joined the boy scouts there was a, uh, a spirit of being able to make yourself into something if you, you know, stuck to the philosophies and their approaches. And, and that was really liberating for him to be around, you know, adults with good ideas about 
uh, how to channel his energy and and he felt that that was that was the rewarding way to go to uh, to stick to principles you got the most out of the most out of doing things um, and then also I, I do think he was trying to make up for uh, like he he knew that you know living a kind of you know disordered life led to misery not only for the individuals like his uh, stepfather who uh, as i said was an alcoholic and was very violent towards both royal and his mother and also his father was not present at all his biological father uh, and was a sort of uh, a fantasist who uh, he occasionally wrote letters he made up but not often, and he made up a lot of stories exaggerating uh, his achievements. Not that his father had no achievements. He'd actually been a uh, welterweight champion in, uh, in boxing in uh, West Virginia, but he made up all kinds of stories about himself. And Royal found that disturbing as a boy, right? Because he could tell that, that these stories were untrue. And uh, he himself kind of became somebody who was like, that's not the way to develop as a person that way. You know, I'm going to be centered on my principles and beliefs. Not that Royal was a stick in the mud, actually. Like he could, there are lots of stories about him and his friends, you know, partying, having fun. You know, he had a, he had a, a, sen a sense of humor and, and so on. It was really fun to be, one of these guys doing all these routes back at the at the time they all they all uh, made that point but i think i think that was uh he was one of these climbers like uh henry barber after him reinhold messner these guys are they have reasons often rooted in their childhood but somehow mysteriously in their personalities generally that you know there are there are way, right ways and wrong ways to do things and whatever other people are going to do, they're going to do it the, what they see as the right way. And certainly Royal did want to conserve uh, climbing areas. Absolutely. And he wanted to conserve Yosemite. And he was, uh, he was uh, prescient that way too, because the park service was al already concerned about scarring and had uh, from pitons and had closed down a couple of areas were close to, nature trails where you could see the piton scarring. So uh, without clean climbing, it's hard to know where exactly uh, Yosemite climbing would have been in the end, right? The Via Ferrata routes everywhere you look, <laughs> maybe, you know, like a lot well, of Well, the, the parks would not have allowed it, right? Like that's the thing, right? Like in, I climb a lot in the Canadian Rockies where the roots rock is very loose and alternatives for protection are pretty limited. So it was pitons before it's bolts. Now there isn't that much other protection in Yosemite. The rock is brilliant and it's in a, a highly traveled park. And so the only other option was something like making less of an impact. And uh, Royal was definitely, he led the way with that. What do you know about his first experience uh, in Yosemite? Was it, immediately a monumental shift in his life was it you know built over time kind of this 
growing appreciation for the place because it is it is a mecca for a lot yeah. of people, for myself yeah. included. It was something yeah. I anticipated seeing for years, and once I did, I I mean, it's just it's heaven on earth. So it doesn't disappoint. No, <laughs> no, it doesn't. There's no way to there's no way to hype it beyond what what people are going to experience when they're there. What do you know about his first times seeing seeing the valley? Well, it, it's an answer like it's uh, has to be answered in sort of uh, referring to like three different occasions. First occasion, he uh, goes with his uh, scoutmaster, scoutmaster Bailey, who was a a beat cop from L.A. who Royal really really respected, and they went there um, and a couple other scouts with him to do kind of a reconnaissance for a, a scout camping trip. And he went there and he looked up at El Cap. The uh, scoutmaster Bailey said to him, no one will ever climb that. It's just impossible. But <laughs> Royal didn't rock climb at a time. Uh, that was about a year or two before he, he started rock climbing with the scouts. And uh, it's so he doesn't record his reaction, but the fact that he's uh, he's uh, recorded this at all is obviously he thought it was kind of funny in retrospect. Then he returned <clears throat> after he learned some climbing in the Sierras uh, with a friend, and they ended up climbing nothing. Like he came into Yosemite, he didn't know he had minimum equipment and experience, and he just thought, "Well, start climbing on some of these walls," and th that was a bust. But his first serious trip as a climber, uh, he made his mark immediately. Uh, he climbed the uh, Arrowhead Buttress, an enormous unrepeated route uh, done over like several days. He did it in two days. Everyone was just like blown away. He walked up to Alan Steck and this like, you know, echoed through the <laughs> climbing history. And Steck was like, the dean of Yosemite climbing. He'd, he'd been to the Alps. He climbed hard, like Komichi's roots on, uh, on, in the Dolomites and big north faces. And he had done this Steck Salate, which was this enormous uh, climb in uh, the biggest, hardest rock climb in North America, basically up the Sentinel. And Royal walked up to him and said, so have you got anything, have you got anything worthwhile to climb around here? And Steck was kind of like, who the hell is this? <laughs> right. And uh, the so Royal came, Royal kind of made his real climbing entree there, thinking, I'm just gonna take this place by storm. And then he did the Steck Salate in um, record time. You know, totally like everyone thought he was him and his friends from Takit Rock in Southern California weren't going to make any kind of mark that they didn't have. Uh, they didn't have that kind of polish that all the university guys like Steck and his friends, you know, guys who'd been to, to Europe. I mean, some of them had been to Europe during the war, but there was a more in the there was a more uh, academic kind of scene in San Francisco and these uh, punk kids from Southern California were not expected to add up to much. And immediately Royal was like beating all the times on the hardest climbs that were, that were there. 
he saw it, I think, right away as a place where he was going to be able to make his mark. He didn't have much money. He didn't have uh, much education. He uh, dropped out of high school. And uh, he went later went back, completed it in high school and in, in night school and took a bunch of other courses. And he was really like a, a self-taught intellectual and really one of our great philosophers in climbing. But at the time, he really, I think he really craved some place where he could make his mark. And all he had to do to, to do it in Yosemite was to get up there in some crappy car from Los Angeles. The world was his oyster, like, you know, Half Dome, El Capitan, almost all the other walls were not climbed in any, by any meaningful routes. He's been called the conscience of rock climbers. What, how did he earn that title and what does that mean? Well, I think he earned it partly by the clean climbing thing. He also was always trying to improve on style. Uh, you know, when Warren Harding climbed uh, El Capitan but via the nose, he used hundreds of bolts in many, many days and he supplied camps and scores of loose of fixed ropes went up and down and Royal felt like things should be done in a better way. Right. He felt like doing things any way that you possibly could was not good enough that you ought to, uh, you ought to hold yourself to a, a standard and allow the, you know, the better climber to, to do something like just not bringing down the challenge to your own level. And so, um, there was that, and like he was against the excessive use of bolts. Uh, he felt like bolts and drilling should be kept to a minimum because, you know, Yosemite was obviously a limited resource. It looks pretty majestic, but it's only five miles long, right? <laughs> and uh, that putting up a route like just with an endless number of bolts up El Capitan was was not desirable. Of course, he's famously known for removing part of a route on El Capitan, the, the Don Wall. Uh, a complicated story, to be sure, but he was doing it because he believed, or he started doing it because he believed that uh, it was it was a, a bad omen for the future that a route that was mainly bolts should go up on El Cap. He stopped part way uh, because he realized that actually the route was pretty awesome that he had already cut all those bolts <laughs> yeah he cut he cut a lot of the bolts it was a very complicated and strange uh strange affair he also felt pressured to act right like he was the guy who, who should act right and people did say royal are you going to do anything about about all those bolts on the don wall i mean people who could have just done it themselves <laughs> but they wanted royal royal to be the guy and then I think also with, uh, with the clean climbing, right? And it gets down to an issue of uh, like, you know, what would you do if with, in, as a climber, like, you know, uh, how are you going to behave if when, uh, when no one is looking, right? <laughs> in a way, they, they were inventing American climbing in Yosemite and what was that going to, what was that going to be like? Was it going to be something where you just sort of did whatever you wanted and you used any number of bolts and, uh, and so on, or was it going to be something where you integrated 
you know, natural crack lines and moved uh, up those as much as you could and waited until you were bold enough to do it with a minimum of bolts. That was Royal. Going into this, you you probably had a decent amount of knowledge on him just being around the scene mm-hmm. early on. Did you ever, did you know him? No, I never met him, but I, I, I could have met him. I mean, I was climbing and he was around and I was even in the industry when he was still alive, but I, I never did meet him. I've subsequently met many of his uh, friends and, uh, and family members, but not, uh, I never met Royal, unfortunately. He sounds like he sounds like a very impressive person to be around, like that he made a big impression on people who actually met him. What did you find going into this, knowing what you did know about him, having not met him but knowing about him and his impact on the sport? What's something that really surprised you about him through your research that you uh, – you just you just didn't know beforehand. Maybe it was a misconception about him, or maybe it was just a side of him people didn't get to see. I think uh, there are a few things. One is that Royal was surprisingly, like, uh, in some ways, a, a physically fragile person, right? Like that he could undergo all kinds of uh, uh, hardships and depredations on a climb. But if he was actually like physically injured, like with a, any kind of like rock fall or, or anything that, you know, really caused him a serious injury, he could be, uh, he could be fragile, which was, uh, it was sort of touching. Like it was kind of like a Achilles's heel or something like that. And almost hard to sort of imagine, but people were surprised by that too when it, when it happened. There was a kind of um, just like not handling it with the grit you would imagine him to, just kind of really tending to the wounds. Really, like being kind of broken down by it, like hurt by, uh, like if you know there were occasions where there was rock fall or something like that, and he would kind of become like faint and need people's help and and uh, and so on. And uh, not like ever like uh, sort of losing his cool about it, but just uh, kind of uh, suddenly, you know, fading under the, that uh, blow. And uh, that was, it only happened a, a, a few times in, in his life, but I, I was really kind of, I was kind of moved by that, that this sort of like, almost like Superman type character could have this sort of, sort of uh uh, frail side to him. And he also dealt with uh, arthritis, which I think yes, hindered him yeah. tremendously with climbing. Yeah, well, he was very stoic about that, right? And about, um, uh, you know, his illness towards the end of his life. But uh, if it kind of things that would suddenly like, you know, like a rock falling on him, causing, you know, bleeding or or incapacitating him somehow that this sort of uh very human fragility could come out um there was that uh, his relationship with um with warren harding was much more complicated than the urban myths of climbing is that they like kind of were lifelong enemies but they were actually lifelong friends i mean royal could be very hurt by some of the things warren did and and vice versa i'm sure but they uh you know, uh, Royal went to see uh, Warren Harding before he uh, 
before Warren died. And uh, there was a, a closeness there, a friendship there that outlasted even uh, Royal uh, chopping all those bolts on, on uh, Warren's route, the Don Wall. And certainly the notion that they kind of both left climbing afterwards and, uh, and uh, didn't talk to each other ever again is absolute nonsense. Uh, they both kept climbing and uh, uh, after that, and, you know, Warren came and stayed at Royal's house in Modesto. <laughs> so uh, not that there weren't tensions and disagreements uh, between them, but uh, there were certainly that. Yeah. Royal's uh, dedication to his family, also his, uh, his Appalachian upbringing, like just how much like the absolute serious poverty in which he grew up, that surprised me for certain. Like I knew a little bit about it, but the, the depth of it and the impact on him, I, I hadn't really known. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Hmm. Yeah, in West Virginia. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. some of the most impoverished areas of our country for sure wow that's yeah i'm sure that would shape you can you tell me a little bit about they are at the cutting edge of this new sport Mm -hmm. kind of creating the culture were he and his friends and the people there aware of just how impactful this was becoming or did they have any sort of inkling of how big this would be or were they just doing what they loved at the time and and just kind of you know, if it drew attention, it drew attention. It didn't matter. Or did you start to see like an awareness with, um, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm influential. Yeah, I think it grew. It's a great question. Uh, uh, Royal always wanted credit for what he did. He never wanted credit, more credit than he deserved, but he always wanted to have, you know, if there were going to be root reports and he did stuff, he wanted his roots to be in there and to, for the reports to reflect the difficulty to such a degree that, you know, some people thought he was sort of bit egoistical about it. Uh, So within his small cadre, he wanted people to understand, like in the late fifties, early sixties, he wanted people to know what he was doing. He wanted people in the California scene to know he was climbing these hard new routes and that they were being done better than they had been done before. But he didn't have, like, they didn't really have much sense that they were getting much attention from people. Like, in fact, the American Alpine Club was sort of ignoring them. Uh, He went to the Tetons, you know, the Tetons were kind of more of, in Wyoming, were more of a scene than Yosemite, right? So you had to kind of go there and prove yourself as a climber on these climbs that were not as good really as the ones that he was doing as rock climbs in, in Yosemite. But obviously, yeah, to, you know, mid sixties when people started, you know, he got, got invited to come to Europe and to teach climbing in Europe and, you know, to England. And he was on a BBC show about rock climbing and he had a sense then he was building a sport and, you know, Schoenard as well. And a couple of these other guys, Doug Tompkins, you mentioned, um, but that from there, that they were all going to like have jobs and be really famous for it. I, I think Royal it was probably the late 70s before Royal really thought that was a done deal, right? Like, 
Um, also, the crowd, you know, as happens in climbing, the next crews that come in after you, their whole thing is they're focused on doing better than you in a different way than you. And mm -hmm. So there being, was, there was that. more disruptive, more, uh, I don't know, counterculture. Or yes, whatever. exactly. And really, you're just the younger version of the folks. They, it's just a cycle. It's an endless cycle. Yeah, um, yeah. But it sounds like the the essence and uh, kind of the goals of dirtbag and really hasn't changed in the last, gosh, eighty years or so. Um, which is work wherever you can to earn enough money to climb as much as possible. Yeah, and uh, they were serious. I mean, talk, like hanging around Yosemite, just climbing smoking dope, uh, you know, spending as little money as possible. That was Yosemite in 1962, right? Like, and, uh, you know, Yvonne Schoenard was like, he didn't own a tent and he would spend months in the summer in the Canadian Rockies. And, uh, you know, these guys, they really uh, lived to climb in a time when there was no prospect of getting anything out of it for yourself, like right through the 60s maybe late sixties, uh, you know, it was getting more popular and became kind of part of the uh, outdoor education movement and so on. But well, let, let me ask you this about that. Cause that's a great, and the last few questions here. Um, <laughs> did he feel pressure to get his quote life together during that time? Cause you're right. There isn't even the possibility of a career at that point. Even now you could lean on, well, I could become a YouTuber or an influencer or something. Um, you can lean on personality, but at mm -hmm. that time there, there wasn't a whole lot. What, what, what kind of pressures was it, were, was he getting around him? And then how did that change once he became a father? Well, it absolutely, uh, you know, he felt a lot of pressure to, uh, to succeed. It was a great time of success for Americans, you know, like people were, uh, post-world war, uh, post-world war economic boom, you know, uh, America was like this total powerhouse as an, as an economy, California, especially, mm -hmm. and people were succeeding. And his, uh, his wife's family, the, uh, uh, Berkners were, uh, very successful, right? They had, uh, his father-in-law had a, a highly successful paint business and, you know, he was very patient with Royal and Royal worked selling paint a lot, but Royal in his, uh, like house know, paint. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but I, like, I come from a family of painters myself. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a big business, right? You know, Modesto and all these suburbs are going up all over the place, and uh, we, we call ourselves artists, but we just say <laughs> it, it's just one color. Artists in one color. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And uh, yeah, and you know, Liz was like, "Royal, we have to get it together. We can't like live out of uh, a van for the rest of our lives." And then he started, he felt that pressure. And then he, uh, he started this business out of the back of his father's uh, father-in-law's uh, paint shop. And uh, he turned out to be really good at running the business. Yeah. So he definitely, he definitely felt, you know, these people they they, you know, they spent some seven, eight, 10 years of their lives just in Yosemite or a few times a year, a month, two months, maybe doing some job in San Francisco or, or somewhere else, going back to Yosemite. And eventually they, I think, 
mostly they got to the point where it's like they'd achieved what they were going to achieve. The new young climbers were in town and, you know, gunning to outdo them. And uh, they, uh, they found other, other stuff to do. And uh, Royal definitely, he kept his love of Yosemite, kept going to Yosemite and caring about it. But uh, he also built this, uh, this business and his family. Right? Hmm. This will be my, my last question after or, or uh, other than asking where to find the book. But what do you think Royal would think about modern climbing? I know he was alive and with us up until 2017. So he got to see basically modern day climbing. But what were his views as climbing progressed? And where do you think they would be now in 2023? Well, it, his views evolved over time. Um, I think that he was one of the people who was very concerned there'd be sport climbing in Yosemite. Like there'd be lots of bolts and there never was because nobody really wanted that. I mean, there was a small number of sport climbs there still are, but I mean, it never really uh, amounted to anything, a substantial threat. Um, he was, he had a time when he was very afraid of that and he was sort of agitating against you know, sport climbing happening, but he gave up on that when he saw that that wasn't really going to be the case. Uh, he went to the climbing gyms uh, when he was older. He was old, you know, he lived to, uh, to do that a bit. I think some of the shifts in how climbing adds up, uh, Royal was a very intelligent person and he would have looked at somebody like Alex Honnold, who, who, is a very good, very keen sport climber who wouldn't have gotten into climbing if it wasn't for climbing gyms. Taking that modern urban exposure into as far as he can in the wild and gone, well, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> I like I, Royal would have, would have been pretty excited to see Alex uh, free solo <laughs> well, Capitan, I think. Uh, Missed it by a couple years. Yeah. So, you know, I think he would, he, he would have been balanced in, in his appraisal, but he certainly would have gravitated towards people who, you know, the kids who, who come up through the gym and take those strengths and skills and apply them outdoors, which I know for certain is always going to be a small minority of those kids, but <laughs> it happens. Uh, uh, we've, we've had, it happens. Uh, we've had Alex Honnold's mom on the show to talk about that story. How did, how did Alex get into it? I, I was just talking to her this morning. So she's, oh, wow. she's, she's a friend of the show and uh, she's been a guest a few times, but yeah, it, it, it did start five years old in the gym. Yeah. Just, she yeah. said, I went to go just, you know, get some prices, get some information. I turned around and he's halfway up a wall, uh, free yeah. soloing. And it's just like, never, yeah. never could slow it down at that after that. So you know. Yeah. And like when you look at when you look at a group of kids bouldering in the gym, they bring all kinds of styles and sensibilities and and commitments to to climbing that that just didn't exist. Uh, you, they had those things never came into contact with with us in climbing. And now they do. And the kids that have that classic mind, which is a minority for uh, rock climbing from that group, we're just seeing what they're what they're doing now and it's incredible i lied i have one more question what do you hope will be something people take away from from reading this book um maybe a theme or a word or a story 
What, what do you want people to take away? That Royal Robbins is a, a giant in American culture, outdoor culture, but uh, as important in his, uh, in his field to uh, uh, important to his field as uh, Hemingway was to literature, you know, one of the great Americans and that one of the great Americans was the American who, who invented American rock climbing. I imagine, uh, you know, going to mountaineersbooks.com uh, or .org, I'm sorry, uh, would be the best place to get this. Comes out September 1st. This will be out after that. And uh, yeah, go to mountaineersbooks.org to find Royal Robbins, The American Climber by David Smart. David, thank you so much for being on the show. This was Thanks so much. super was interesting. We didn't get to dive into too many stories, but I, I wanted to save them. I wanted to save because it's beautifully written and I'm really enjoying going through it. And uh, I want people to read some of these absolutely insane situations he, he finds himself in. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.